Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 2 to 16. Verses 2 to 16. If you're using one of the black Bibles that's uh, in one of the chairs there around you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 958. 958. I do want to just say a word uh, before we read our passage. Uh, we are currently in a series in 1 Corinthians, so we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're now in chapter 11, and uh, Corinthians breaks up into six major sections, okay? So the first section is chapters 1 through 4, where Paul talks about unity. Uh, the second section is chapters 5 through 7, where Paul talks about sexual immorality and sexual purity. Uh, the third section is chapters 8 through 10, where Paul talks about idolatry. And that's what we've been considering actually for a number of weeks previous, whether the Corinthians should eat meat that's sacrificed to idols and that sort of thing. And now, this morning, it marks a new section, chapters 11 through 14, Paul's going to address matters of worship. In particular, this section is well known for Paul discussing matters of spiritual gifts and how spiritual gifts should operate in the life of a church. And then the following section is section, uh, the fifth section is chapter 15, which Paul talks about the resurrection, and then chapter 16 is closing. So 1 through 4 is unity, 5 through 7 is sexual purity and immorality, 8 through 10, idolatry, 11 through 14, worship, 15, resurrection, 16 is closing. Now this morning, as I mentioned, we're starting in this new section on worship, and Paul begins by addressing a matter of head coverings. Uh, gathered worship, and whether women should wear head coverings in gathered worship, okay? So Tom Schreiner, who is a uh, New Testament scholar, he was a professor of mine when I was in seminary and is a well-known New Testament scholar, he writes regarding this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, quote, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, has some features that make it one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible, end of quote. So you can be praying for me this morning, okay? So one of the most difficult and controversial passages in all of the Bible. We have our hands full this morning. Having said that, I think there are clear biblical principles and truths that we will find in our text that are applicable and beneficial to all of us. There will be some things that are unclear, and, and we'll, we'll talk about those things, uh, but we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, uh, there are clear, I think, biblical principles and truths in this passage that are helpful for all of us. So with that in mind, I'm going to read for us uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you and praise you this morning for your word, and we do pause now again to ask for your help. Lord, give us wisdom and insight as we turn to your word. Fill us with your spirit that we might understand it faithfully, and Father, that we might apply it to our lives, and that we might be image bearers who bring you glory in our lives, in our families, in our worship. So help us, Lord. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things I want to recognize just right off the bat is that this passage is so countercultural. I mean, I really haven't even said anything about the passage yet. And I can imagine that some people, just in me reading the passage, might feel a little bit uncomfortable or even offended. Here's one thing, though, that we need to consider in, in reading a passage like this that is so countercultural. If the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe that it is, then we have a responsibility to be willing to listen to it and to receive it. If not, if we aren't willing to listen to the Bible, if we aren't willing to receive the Bible, then essentially what we become is the editor-in-chief of the Bible, right? So that we just kind of ignore the parts that we don't like, or we dismiss the parts that make us feel uncomfortable. And essentially what happens when we start to do that with the Bible is that we place ourselves in the position of God. And so then what happens when we, when we just kind of take the Bible and we, we take out the pieces that we like and we discard the pieces that we don't like or we ignore the parts that make us feel uncomfortable, essentially what happens is we start to conform God into our image. So the Bible never has the power to change us because we're just using the Bible to reflect what are already our own preconceived ideas and notions about who we are and what life is about. Instead, what we need to do is to be willing to listen to the Bible and to receive the Bible even in the hard places. And then what happens is the Bible fulfills its intention in our lives. We begin to be transformed, not to conform God to our image, but to be transformed into the image of God as God speaks his word to us through the Bible. You know, oftentimes if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to listen, if we're willing to receive what the Bible has to say to us, what we will find is in fact what the Bible reveals is glorious. And it's beautiful. And oftentimes it's far better for us, far more good for us than what we would have originally perceived. With that in mind, I hope that we'll be open and we'll be eager to hear what the Bible has to say to us from this passage. 
Because it is, in fact, countercultural. And one of the reasons why this passage is so countercultural is because in recent years, in our society, there has been an outright rejection of traditional gender roles. You know, there was a, uh, a time when you would go to school, you know, you'd, you'd uh, fill out an application to go to school, or uh, you might fill out an application to get a job, or you might uh, fill out a, a form to be on a sports team, and there was a box, and it was labeled gender, and there were two options, male and female. But my friends, that is quickly changing. Do you know that in New York City, the city of New York now offers their citizens 31 gender options? If you, if you, social media, right? If you have an account on Facebook, Facebook now offers 58 gender options. I won't read every single one of them, but I'll just give you a sample, okay? Agender, androgyny, androgynous, bigender, cisgender, female to male, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, intersex, male to female, neither, neutrosis, non-binary, other, pangender, trans, trans female, trans male, trans man, trans person, trans woman, trans feminine, transgender, transgender female, transgender male, transgender man, transgender person, transgender woman, transgender masculine, transsexual, transsexual female, transsexual male, transsexual man, transsexual person, transsexual woman, two-spirit. Now, my friends, it is apparent that in our culture there is there is a deep and disturbing confusion about gender. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And in fact, when, even when I read that list to you, there might be some who say, oh yeah, but actually that, that's so progressive, that's so forward-thinking. But you know the reality is, it's not nearly as progressive as we might assume. In fact, Paul was writing to a church 2,000 years ago, a church in Corinth. And Corinth was a city that was known in the Greco-Roman world as being sexually deviant and perverse. They accepted almost anything you can imagine of sexually. Corinth was known to be a city that embraced sexual immorality, adultery, prostitution, celebrated homosexuality, even celebrated pedophilia. And it was into this very culture that one of the early leaders of the Christian church said, listen, new Christians in Corinth, do you want to honor, do you want to glorify God? One of the ways that you will honor and glorify God is when you gather together for worship, you will reflect in your worship your God-created, designed gender roles. You will reflect in your worship who God has made you to be as male and female. And you will reflect that in your distinct roles as men and women. That's one of the things, that's the, really the main point that I want us to see in our passage this morning. That the Bible teaches us that when Christians honor the equality and distinctiveness of men and women, God is glorified. 
When Christians honor the equality and distinctiveness of men and women, God is glorified. Now, I'm going to go ahead, before we get into our passage, I'm going to give away what my position is on this passage, okay? So you just know right up front. I believe that this passage is teaching that there is a universal principle that should be accepted and honored in all times and all places. And the universal principle is that men and women have been created equal, equal value, equal worth, but they have distinct roles, okay? But there are unique cultural expressions of this principle that are determined by the time and culture that you live in. And I think actually, and hopefully we'll see this as we go through the passage, I think that head coverings were a particular cultural expression in Corinth of this universal principle that applies in all times and all places. This is actually the interpretation of the passage that most conservative, Bible-believing scholars and Bible teachers take, and I think, as best I understand, that's what's happening here in these verses. With that in mind, I want us to look at our passage. I want us to see five factors that teach us about the equality and distinctiveness of men and women. Five factors that teach us about the equality and distinctiveness of men and women. All right, here's the five factors. Trinity, honor, creation, interdependence, in nature. We'll go through each one, so if you don't get them all, that's okay. Let's start with Trinity, okay? First, look there in verses 2 to 3. This is the first factor that teaches us about the equality and distinctiveness of men and women. Verse 2, Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this principle that Paul lays out in verse 3 is critical to understanding his larger teaching here in this passage. The word he uses there, head, is representative of headship or authority. So, it's not uncommon for us today to say something like, he or she is the head of that company. What do we mean by that? Well, he or she in that situation is the primary leader, the primary one that's responsible or has authority over that organization. And that's what Paul is speaking of here when he says that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Now, some will object here immediately and say, well, if a man, and in particular when you think about this in the context of a marriage relationship, if a husband is the head of his wife, if he has authority in the relationship, then that necessarily means that the woman is unequal to the man or she is inferior to the man. And Paul would have us to know that that is wrong, that that is actually not what he is teaching. And that's why it's so important for us to understand what Paul is saying here and what the larger Bible says about men and women to understand it in the context of the Trinity. Paul grounds here his understanding of male and female in the reality of the triune God of the Bible. So what is the Trinity? It is the Christian doctrine of God. This is what the Bible teaches us about who God is. The Trinity teaches us that there is one great God and He exists in three persons. There is one great God and He exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each one of these persons are fully and equally God. 
They are equal in essence. They are equal in being. So God the Father is not more God than God the Son. God the uh, Holy Spirit is not more God than God the Father. They are equal in essence and being. They are fully God, each one of the persons of the Trinity. And within the Trinity, within the Godhead, there is a structure of authority and submission. This is most clearly seen in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So that God, Jesus is God the Son, He is fully God, but He willingly and joyfully submits Himself to God the Father. So Jesus says regarding His own ministry in John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And so here we see within the triune God, within the Trinity itself, that there is distinctions of persons, there is absolute equality, but there is a structure of authority and submission. And this then is reflected in how God has created us as men and women. When God created us, it says that God created us in His image. And one of the ways that He created us in His image is He intends in creating us in the way that we relate to one another as male and female to reflect something about who He is, to reflect the equality of the triune God, to reflect the authority and submission structure that is reflected within the triune God. And so headship is not a matter of superiority. Headship is not about um, you know, men are better than women. That, that is absolutely unbiblical. The Bible is clear that men and women are created with equal value and worth. Neither is headship a matter of intelligence or gifting. It's not that God looked at creation and he saw that men were more intelligent or men were more gifted than women and so he gave them the position of headship. No, not at all. In fact, we find that oftentimes women are smarter than men, right? And in fact, we find that... Uh, Women are particularly more gifted than their counterpart men in certain situations. And so it's not a matter of gifting or intelligence. Rather, headship is designed by God to reflect in men and women something about who He is, His glory, the equality, the headship, the submission that is um, present in the Godhead. We see this not only in the male-female relationship, we see, and, and this helps us make sense of the world, we see this idea of authority and submission interwoven into the universe, right? I mean, it's all around us. It, it, it shouts again and again to us that, that we worship a triune God, that we're reflecting and we are created to reflect His glory. I mean, why do we have teachers and students, employers and employees, parents and children, government leaders and citizens, coaches and players. All of these are representations of authority and submission. And each one of them can be, can be engaged in in such a way in which you could cause great, great harm if that authority is misused. But if that authority is embraced with love and humility... Oh, my friends, it can lead to such blessing and life. And this is what God intends as He creates man and woman. That man and woman would embrace 
their identities, who God has created them to be, embrace the roles that God has given them, that it would be embraced with love and they would relate to one another in these roles in love and that it would create an environment of flourishing and life. The second factor, so the first factor that teaches us about the equality and distinctiveness of men and women is the Trinity. The second factor is honor, honor. Look there in verses 4 to 6 and we read these words. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So, as Paul is talking about here about the ideas of equality and distinctiveness of men and women, he is particularly concerned about how these things play themselves out in the gathered worship of God's people. That's what we're doing this morning. We're gathering together as God's people to worship Him. And we know that because in these verses, Paul specifically mentions a scenario in which a man or a woman is praying or prophesying, Right? So Paul's clearly here referring to gathered worship. When the people of God gather, when a man prays or prophesies, or when a woman prays or prophesies, Paul is concerned that it would be done in such a way that would honor the equality and distinctions of men and women and their roles. One thing we should note here as Paul talks about this matter is that Paul assumes that in gathered worship that women will in fact pray and prophesy. He assumes that women will participate in the gathered worship of God's people. But here in Corinth, the controversy is, okay, but when women are participating in gathered worship, should they have their heads covered, supposedly with a piece of cloth or something like that, or can they have their heads uncovered? Now, one of the things that Paul, the, the way that Paul frames this conversation, though, is he talks about this matter of, of head coverings and whether they should have their heads covered or not, is he frames it in the context of honor and shame. You see, it seems in Paul's day that women wore head coverings as an expression of modesty, as an expression of respect and submission. This was in Corinth at that time, and we may even could say the larger Greco-Roman world, it was a cultural expression of the distinct roles of men and women. And Paul is saying that how you handle this, how you respond to this, how you, how you, um, how you choose to act in corporate worship given this reality is a matter of honor or shame. Now, now, we instinctively know this if we just broaden this out a little bit and think about the roles of men and women. We instinctively know this, that, that there is something about a man and the calling to be a man that if we fulfill that role, it is honorable, but if we don't, it's shameful. Now, you think about the role that a man is called to. A man is called to provide and to protect and to love and to lead. But if a man is unwilling to sacrificially love and care for his wife, we would say that's shameful. If a man is unfaithful to his wedding vows and cheats on his wife, we would say that's shameful. If a man is unwilling to provide for his family because he's lazy, we would say that's shameful. And Paul says that there's a similar reality when it comes to women. 
That a woman is called to love and support and encourage and submit to her husband. And so for a woman to lovingly honor and respect her husband, that is honorable. But for a woman to constantly criticize her husband or belittle him in public or always demand the final say, that is shameful. And that these identity roles, these identities as male and female and how these roles play themselves out in corporate worship also are matters of honor and shame. So when we gather together for worship, do we gather together in worship in such a way that honor those distinct roles and therefore give glory to God? No doubt Christianity has greatly enhanced starting from the first century all the way uh, moving to our present day, Christianity has greatly enhanced the dignity and role of women. We think about Jesus' life and ministry. We think about how there were women involved in his life and ministry and work all throughout his life. We think about the, the greatest historical event that has ever taken place, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the four gospel accounts, all four gospel accounts record that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. We think about the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, but wrote many other letters in the New Testament, and repeatedly in those letters he makes reference to women who were co-laborers with him in the gospel. The Bible recognizes and the Bible honors the many and varied roles that women play in ministry and in gathered worship. I mean, here in our text, as I pointed out just a few moments ago, Paul assumes that women will pray and prophesy in gathered worship. That's one of the reasons why we here at Crawford Avenue, when we gather together for worship, we will often have women read scripture or pray or participate in the leading of songs in gathered worship. But at the same time, Paul is concerned that a woman's ministry in the life of the church and her role in gathered worship would be exercised in such a way that honors male headship. So for example, here Paul says that a woman will pray or prophesy in a corporate gathering. But in 1 Timothy, Paul says that a woman should not preach, she should not teach in the gathered worship of God's people where men and women are present because the primary responsibility of preaching and teaching and leading has been given to men. Paul says that when we embrace these roles, when we embrace these distinctions, that it is in fact honorable. That it's honorable to women because it empowers them to exercise their gifts and their abilities in a way that brings God glory. It's consistent with His purpose and plan. It honors men because it empowers them to fulfill their responsibility to lead as God has called them to. And it honors God because in so doing, we are declaring to ourselves and to the world that we're here not just to do what we think is right, not just to make this thing up as we go, but we are here to glorify God as He has created us and designed us to be. The third factor that teaches us about the equality and distinction of men and women is creation. So trinity, honor, and then the third one is creation. Look there in verses 7 to 10 and we read these words. Paul writes, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. So here Paul is reflecting on the account of creation that's recorded in the Bible. 
And Paul says, first of all, God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, right? So we know that from the Genesis account, God created Adam. And then, um, and, and Adam, we should say this as well, Adam was created in the image of God. And he was created in the image of God that he might reflect the glory of God to the world. But there was a problem. And we read about that problem in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. We read there, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Adam is created in the image of God, but he's incomplete. He, he needs a helper. And so God places Adam into a deep sleep. And then out of the rib of Adam, God created Eve. That's why Paul says in verse 8, woman was made from man. But then Paul goes on in verse 9 to say, That woman was also, not only was she created from man, but she was created for man. In other words, once Eve was created, we read in the the Genesis account that Adam rejoiced. He was full of joy because now here he has this suitable helper. God has provided him with the helper that he knew Adam longed for and that Adam needed. And so now in this relationship, Adam is to reflect the glory of God. And Eve, or the woman, is to reflect the glory of God, absolutely. But in a unique sense, she is also to reflect the glory of man. In that, she willingly joins him and helps him and supports him in his labor. Of course, this is most immediately reflected in a husband-wife relationship. But even for women who uh, might be here this morning that are single... You can think about other men in your life that God has placed an authority in your life. Maybe father your father, or you can think about church leaders that God has placed in authority in your life. But in, 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 all these, in all these relationships, these are opportunities to glorify God by coming alongside these individuals, respecting them, honoring them, supporting them, and encouraging them. Now, one of the things you'll find is, as you read passages like this is that folks will say, well, you know, all this, all this stuff about the idea of you know, a man being a servant leader and a woman being a suitable helpmate, all this stuff is really a result of the fall. This whole idea of distinction of roles between men and women, that's a result of sin. And really what we need to do is we need to get beyond that. But that, in fact, is not the case, right? And we see it right here in this passage. We see it in the Genesis account as well. That the distinction between men and women, not only in gender identity, but also in role and function, was not a result of sin or the fall, but it was a part of God's original creative design that he declared as good. That this distinction is written into God's creative design. And so this is the creative principle that I think is universal in all times and in all places. No matter what time of history you live in, no matter what place of the world you live in, there is a distinction between men and women that is to be honored that brings glory to God. But I would also say, based on this passage, that there are different cultural expressions of that principle. So let me give you an example of this. Where's an example in the Bible of a a universal principle that has different cultural expressions? Well, you think about the letters that are written to the churches in the New Testament. Regularly, you'll see the New Testament authors admonish the churches to greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? Now, I imagine this morning we have a wonderful greeter team. They do an amazing job here at Crawford Avenue. But I imagine when you walked in this morning... You were not 
uh, embraced by our greeter team and greeted with a holy kiss. In fact, if you were, you might feel a little bit unwelcomed, right? That would probably feel, make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Why? In this culture, that's not the way we greet one another. Now, when I was in the Ukraine, they kissed each other all the time, right? That was part of it. So I had men kissing me and everything. Made me feel really weird, but that's the way they did it, so I was okay with it, Okay? But that's a cultural expression of a universal principle, right? What's the universal principle? That as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see one another, we should greet one another in a way that's welcoming and loving and inviting so that people feel accepted and cared for. That's the universal principle. And in some cultures, that means a handshake and a pat on the back. And in some cultures, that means a hug. And in some cultures, that means a kiss. It'll be expressed in different cultures in different ways. But there's a universal principle that is to be honored. I think that's what's happening here in this passage. Paul is appealing to a universal principle of the distinction between men and women. And then he is applying a cultural expression of that in the city of Corinth. What would be in a cultural expression that we have in our own day of the distinction of men and women that honors, say, male headship? I think one apparent expression of this is in our society, our custom that when a man marries a woman, the woman takes the man's last name. Well, why do we do that? You know, why, why don't they just keep their own name? Or why don't you take the woman's name? Well, this is a way in our culture that we express that the two have become one and that there is one who is looked to as the lead or the head of the household. Now, there might be unique situations or you can think of some particular scenario where you'd say, oh, well, in this situation it would be appropriate for a woman to keep her name. Maybe that's the case, but generally speaking, I think Paul would say that's an appropriate cultural expression of how God has created us distinct in our roles as men and women. And to embrace those types of cultural expressions that are, that are unique to a culture and society that express this principle, to embrace those things in a way that's humble and loving is God-honoring. Okay, the fourth factor. So we've looked at Trinity, we've looked at honor, we've looked at creation. The fourth factor is interdependence, okay? The fourth factor that teaches us about the equality and distinctiveness of men and women. Look there in verse 11 and we read these words. Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. So Paul has been teaching us about equality and distinctiveness. He did that through the Trinity. He did that through creation. Now it seems that Paul is just appealing to logic, right? He's saying, okay, think about this. Think about the relationship between men and women. And we see here that there's distinction, but there's also interdependence. In particular, he appeals to the reality that Eve was made out of the body of Adam, but every man thereafter comes from the body of a woman, okay? So Eve was made from the body of Adam, but every man thereafter comes from the body of a woman. And I think one of the things that Paul's intending to communicate here, he says, just look at that. Now, now what kind of conclusions would you draw from that? And one of the things I think that Paul is intending to communicate here is that the relationship between men and women should not be a competition. 
That God has intentionally created us in such a way that we are dependent upon one another, that we should work together. That we should see the value and significance of one another's role and place, and we should love and honor one another. And oh, my friends, how countercultural is that? In fact, Paul would argue, and I think the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament arguing, that either male dominance or high-handed feminism is inconsistent with God's creative design and purpose. Men and women are not independent of one another. They are dependent on one another, and they are dependent upon one another in such a way that literally their survival is at stake. If there's no more men, there's no more offspring. Drop my handkerchief. If there's no more women, there's no more children. Right? We are dependent upon such a, on one another for survival. And God created us that way. And so Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 12 to talk about how we as a church body are dependent upon one another. Like you, one person in the body can't say, oh, I don't need that person and so forth. And he, he, he talks about this in body language. So like in 1 Corinthians 12, 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head say, head say to the feet, I have no need of you. So as much as that is applicable for us as Christians in the body of Christ, it's also applicable as we think about gender about the relationship between men and women. But you know, when gender roles begin to be distorted, when gender roles begin to be rejected, when gender roles are confused, what happens? Essentially, men and women start saying to each other, I don't need you. And so what happens? Women begin by men to be reduced to sex objects and not cherished as loving spouses. Right? I will use you, but I don't need you. Or, women will begin to reject their need for men, right? It wasn't that long ago that we were inundated with all these articles and all these interviews and so forth about, are fathers necessary? Right? Can we just raise kids? Can we have families without dads? Dads just kind of get in the way. They're a mess. What's happening? As the society continues to reject where God has created us, male and female, and to reject gender roles, we begin to have this animosity towards one another. To say, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own. And in contrast to this, what we see is that in contrast to this hostility, in contrast to this enmity between genders, the Bible calls us to recognize and embrace God's good design for male and female, and to celebrate that equality, and to celebrate the distinct roles in our lives and in our gathered worship together. Fifth and finally, nature. Okay, So the fifth factor that teaches us about the equality and distinctiveness of men and women. Verse 13 to 15. Paul says, Judge for yourselves... Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So the key here is verses 14 and 15, where Paul appeals to nature. 
And let's just define this quickly. Nature is defined as uh, a natural or instinctive sense of right and wrong. Okay, so God has given us each a conscience, and by nature we're given a conscience, and it gives us a natural sense of right and wrong. So Paul, in other places, appeals to our nature when it comes to matters of sexuality. So when Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a culture that celebrated uh, homosexuality, Paul appealed to their nature. Paul appealed to their consciences. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27... Paul says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations. For those that are contrary to nature, contrary to conscience, contrary to what we know is good and right. Paul says, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And as Paul takes this principle of appealing to conscience, appealing to nature, uh, Paul speaks to the Corinthians in a context in which, and we know this by historical artifacts, that it was widely accepted that it was masculine for men to have shorter hair, generally speaking, and feminine for women to have longer hair. We know this through thousands of pictures and artifacts and sculptures and so forth. You know the strange thing is? That's actually the case in most cultures even today. Now, I, I want to say, I, I think we should be a little bit careful here. I don't think Paul's asking us to like get the ruler out, you know, and go around all the guys and see if like their hair's touching their ear, or the collar, or is it down to the shoulders, or you know, that sort of thing. I think Paul here is appealing to a general principle. And some of this I do think is cultural. I think there's ways, even I think this is right, that even in our culture today that men might have longer hair, but it's styled in a way that is perceived as more masculine. That women might have shorter hair, but it's styled in a way that is perceived as more feminine. But Paul is acknowledging here, and we know this by instinct, we know this by nature, we know this in our own consciences, that there are hairstyles and there are clothes and there are trends that are either decidedly more masculine or decidedly more feminine. There is a reason why even lesbians, right, will sometimes refer to their particular haircut, and I don't mean this in any way derogatory, I'm just affirming what they would say, that they refer to their particular haircut as a butch haircut. Now, why do they do that? Because they have cut their hair in such a way that they are intentionally rejecting their femininity, and they have styled it in a way that's short, in a particular way that's short, that represents masculinity. There is a reason why individuals, some individuals refer to themselves as drag queens, right? What's happening in that situation? A man is intentionally and decidedly rejecting his masculinity and embracing a title that a female would take. And he's reflecting that in the way that he does his hair, in the way that he wears his clothes, in the way everything. So listen, I know that this is not going to be popular, okay? I know this is probably not going to be perceived as cool or hip or progressive or in. But I think the scriptures clearly teach us that as Christians, we should avoid certain styles 
and trends that are intended to blur or to erase the distinction between male and female. And in so doing, and in embracing our gender identity, our gender role as God has created us, and doing so consistent with what conscience and nature teaches us, we will honor and glorify God. So these are the five factors that Paul lays out that teaches us about the equality and distinctiveness of men and women. Trinity, honor, creation, interdependence, and nature. So there it is, one of the most difficult, controversial passages in the New Testament. That's my best attempt at explaining it to you. But as we walk away from this, what, what, what can we take? What can we take from this passage? I think there's a number of things, but, but this is, I think, one important takeaway. My friends, we need to remember, especially of those of you here, here this morning that are professing to be followers of Christ or disciples of Jesus, that as the Christian church in the West, we will increasingly be tested on the matter of gender on what it means to be male, what it means to be female, what is our sexuality and how do we express it, what is marriage, all of these things. And the question then becomes, are we as disciples of Jesus, are we just free to make this up as we go? Can we just kind of, you know, Facebook has 58 gender identities, maybe we'll make it 100. You know, are we just free to make this stuff up as we go? Or has God created us in such a way and designed us in such a way that we are created in His image, we've been given specific gender identities and roles, and in living those out, we bring Him glory? My friends, God has saved us and He has redeemed us in Christ so that His image might be restored in us. And so that we might reflect His glory to the world. And if you aren't grounded, like if you aren't grounded in what the Bible teaches on these matters, you will be washed away. I mean, everything is going in the opposite direction, right? But listen, in Corinth, everything was going in the opposite direction. And Paul stood up and said, no. There's a design in this. God has intentions for us in this. And it's good and it's right and it's pure. And you know what? The Roman Empire, it's gone. Christianity won the day. And even this morning, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, there's a Christian pastor proclaiming the truth about gender identity and roles. And that's happening all over the world. Right? We shouldn't be afraid of the culture that we live in. We shouldn't be hostile. We shouldn't be unnecessarily offensive. We should speak with love and humility. But we should cling to the truth that God has given us because it is right and it is good. The Bible teaches us that in fact our gender is not inconsequential. It's at the essence of who we are and who we're created to be and how we reflect God's glory to the world. Finally, I would just say that there are some of you here this morning that I imagine at this point you may be saying, you know, I've just, on these matters, as you teach about this, I read these verses, I've just totally made a mess of things. I I have not brought God honor 
in my life when it comes to these matters. In fact, I have shamed him. Maybe a man here this morning who's, who's married and you say, you know, I, I've been unfaithful, I've been selfish, I've been lazy, I haven't honored what God's called me to be as a man. Maybe a wife here this morning, you say, you know what, my life has been marked much more by contentiousness and belittling and shaming rather than honor and submission. You may be here this morning and you say, you know, whether you're male or female, and you say, man, I, I've just, I've given myself to sexual immorality, to pornography, to homosexuality. I've been experimenting sexually. Like, I can identify with all those options on Facebook because I've experimented so much sexually, I don't even know who I am anymore. I couldn't tell you if I'm heterosexual or homosexual or what I am. No, my friends, from one center to another, I have good news for you this morning. The church of Corinth that Paul was writing to, it was full of people like that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a few chapters prior, Paul writes to this church and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to this, Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, my friends, Christ has come so that the image of God might be restored in you. And it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter where you've been, and it doesn't matter what you've done, as you call out to Christ, and you believe in Him, and you trust in Him, and you submit to His Lordship, and you say, God, I want you and your glory to be reflected in my life, and in my gender, and in my relationships, and in gathered worship, and in all that is about me. Christ will redeem you. He will save you. He will wash you with His blood. He died so that you might be forgiven of your sins and so that the image of God might be restored in you. Oh, my friends, this is good news for sinners who are confused and distorted, who have lost their way. And that's true of every one of us. God extends His grace to us. And He calls us to be all that He has created us to be. Let's go to Him in prayer. God, I pray for these words that might fall on our ears at first and be hard and difficult and even offensive. Oh Lord, I pray that through these words we might see your good design, your grace, your mercy, your redemption, the hope that there is in the gospel. Father, every one of us have failed you as it relates to what we're called to be as a man or called to be as a woman. Every one of us have failed you. Lord, forgive us. Help us even now to take ownership of that, to confess that before you. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would be restoring in us, making us new, helping us and empowering us to reflect your image that we might bring you glory. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning that might for the first time have thought to themselves, maybe I could believe in this Jesus and experience this hope. Oh God, help them even now to take that step. 
And Lord, we pray that they would find this to be a loving community where they learn to know what it means to follow Jesus in all and in every areas of life. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.